I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession uh, before we begin our um, worship through the preaching of God's word. So we join me in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your mercy and grace that is extended to us in Christ. We come to confess this morning for you teach us it is good for our souls. We trod this fallen world and we struggle with sin uh, this side of glory, this side of our great hope of eternal glory, free from the very presence of sin. We thank you that we are free from the power and reign of sin in our lives through your atoning work, Christ. We are now in that phase of of living in the reality of two kingdoms. We are in this world as uh, your uh, chosen people, your redeemed children, yet um, we await our eternal forever home. And we await it eagerly. But as we are here, we are called to be light. And we ask that you would strengthen us for our intimacy with you, our fellowship with you is it is. Uh, dampened, it is, it is hampered, it is hindered by our struggle with sin. So we confess it, we ask for strength, we ask for wisdom, we ask for your enabling grace to walk righteously, to know you more fully. Uh, the Spirit of God would take your truth and fill us up and um, build us up in our relationship with you. And we ask that you might grant us capacity to be light, to be your witnesses, to honor you and to glorify your name and the context that you have given us and the time that you have called us as your children to be your witnesses here, to be disciple, disciple makers among the nation. Oh, would you use us? Would you um, give us clarity? Would you give us boldness and strength and perseverance that we might know you and live for your glory as your witnesses? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we'll uh, return to the book of Acts, and we're going to enter in to chapter 21. We'll be looking at the first six verses, and they're kind of, uh, again, we're, we're looking at travel verses. So we're going to uh, kind of trace a, a route, and often we think, wow, where is the spiritual good there? Where is the spiritual uh, lesson and application? And I hope to draw out some for us, and a bit by way of reminder uh, of Paul's calling and Paul's life and his uniqueness, uh, the uniqueness of his life, but uh, the consistency of it and the um, the application that also belongs to us as followers of Christ. So I hope to pull some of that out for us this morning. But uh, the title of this morning's message is Paul, the Persistent Apostle. And we'll be looking at Acts 21, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. So if you'll join me there, the beginning of chapter 21, and we'll read through the first six verses. When we had parted from them, and now he's talking about the elders there in Miletus, their last meeting, his last meeting with the elders. There. So that's, that's where he's referencing. He's parting from the elders of Miletus. When he, had, when, when he and his eight uh, comrades had parted from the elders there at Miletus, they set sail. And they ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patria. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, 
We went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed in Tyre. And there the ship was unloaded. And there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started our journey. And while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to, the, to one another. Then we went on board the ship and returned home again. Now, again, we're just looking here at an introductory part of Paul's overall journey. And just to kind of back us up for reference here and kind of gather us around this text again. It's been a while since we've been tracking with Paul, a couple of weeks now. So Paul's headed back to Jerusalem, right? That's his, the calling that he feels is upon his life. And he feels that he is bound by the Spirit of God to fulfill this mission, if you will. So Paul's returning home after being the apostle to the Gentiles. Now we see him make his way all the way back. And by the way, he they're going to land in the port of Tyre here, right? The Old Testament port of Tyre. So uh, where did Paul start his journey? Where did Paul cast off uh, as his missionary endeavors to the Gentiles? He's, he's kind of making full circle, if you will, right? So Paul's returning home. And, of course, he's ultimately planning to make his way to Jerusalem. Why? Remember why? What's going on with Paul? Why is he so uh, uh, bound and determined and, and has carrying this urgency to get back to Jerusalem? What's he's been up to? to the, uh, Jerusalem from the Gentile church. Yes. Yes, so he's been busy about collecting a monetary gift from the Gentile churches, the whole representation of the Gentile churches has been a part of his missionary, three missionary endeavors now to the Gentile world. And so these churches that have been planted, he's gathered a monetary love offering. And there's been some issues and some struggles there, but Paul has made this uh, the central point of his connecting the Jewish and Gentile Christians together. Now, again, the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem are still uniquely Jewish. They are still working their way out of the ceremonial life. There is much Jewishness in uh, that church, and there is still a rub. There's still a resistance. There's still a struggle of our frailty and our humanity as Christians in this world, in this fallen world, and they're experiencing that. There is an ethical issue that still there's layers and tradition, y'all right? Does tradition die easily? No, it does not. It dies a thousand deaths. And we're all guilty of it to some degree at times. Well, there, there's, there's layers here. And Paul intends and, and has his whole heart set in working on unity and delivering this love gift to the Jerusalem church, who, by the way, is under great persecution from the surrounding Jewish community that's opposed to their, to their being, being followers of Christ. And also there's been a famine. There's, there's layers of struggle with this church. And there's issues again. Uh, there's, there's still some uh, doubt with what Paul is doing or just uncertainty. Or uh, there's, there's part of the flesh that just holds on to those deeply rooted traditions that, that we come out of as Christians or work our way out of as the Holy Spirit of God works in our lives. And all that's in play. 
And Paul intends to do great good in just bringing the sacrifice from the Gentile church as a love gift to the, to the church there in Jerusalem, this, this uh, Jewish contingency of the body of Christ, and to unite them in love and to do practical good, to really minister to their needs. And they have been, they have been suffering. They're under a great deal of persecution. And he wants to just kind of also inject a little, uh, you know, just a, a jolt of spiritual life and vitality in them. I mean, when you're under persecution, yes, God is gracious, but it is a dogfight. The, the church has been under persecution in various corners of the world at various times since uh, the beginning. But it's a dogfight. It's an emotionally draining, sometimes physically crippling dogfight. And he just is going to come and love on them with his love gift. And he is bound and determined to make this happen. It is his mission in life, his calling now to bring this love gift back there to the church of Jerusalem from the Gentile churches that have been planted. And so when you think about this reality, I want you to see the persistence of Paul, the persistence of Paul the apostle. Yes, he has a unique call, but he's also a Christian. Like all of us here that, have, that are true, genuine, blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, just the Holy Spirit of God indwells Paul. Does he have a unique role? Was he a man in a unique time? Was he a unique apostle? Was he an apostle of Christ? Yes, all those things are true of Paul. They're not necessarily true of us. But there is also this great, abounding reality of who we are as Christians that is exactly the same as who Paul was as a Christian. And so there's much overlap uh, from Paul's life, although it's unique, there's much overlap for the Christian reality of Paul's life that pours into us, that God has preserved in his word for us, that is encouraging for us and challenging and something to give us uh, 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 a means or, or things to hold on to, to pray for, that if you will, we too would be as we see the example of Paul. We too would go in the power of Christ and live likewise. And one of those aspects is his persistence. Now we see persistence lived out in all of life, right? God's created persistence. He's created character. And humanity and fallen humanity still has character. We still have convictions. We still have uh, standards. Now we know that the question is, by what standard does your standard stand upon, but there's still standards throughout culture. And there's still expectations. And persistence is a beautiful thing in all of life, but it is vital and life-giving and evidentiary of the power of Christ at work in his people in the Christian life. For our persistence is a persistence to the glory of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let me just give you a little definition of persistence here, a very broad definition. Persistence is possibly more, but nothing less than continually fir continuing firmly or obstinately in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Also, persistence is continuing to exist or endure over a prolonged period of time. Now, there's one genre of life. There's Persistence is a beautiful thing that we can see in all for, for you know all of life. But there's one genre that, that I, I'm 
gravitate to uh, quite frequently, and that's sports. I enjoy sports. Y'all know that. Uh, I try not to get too in, entangled in it, but I enjoy it. I try to spend not, not too much time just, you know, uh, zoning out on sporting uh, events, but I enjoy it. So sports is a great place to see persistence, right? Perseverance in sports is a great thing. So I want to give you a couple examples just from the, the sports world of perseverance as kind of we think about this reality here, something that just struck me uh, as fascinating. George Foreman. You remember George Foreman? Some of you may know he was a heavyweight uh, boxing champion, world champ, uh, two times. Here's the interesting about George Foreman. Uh, after he won his first heavyweight title, heavyweight championship, he retired soon after. He lost his title and retired soon after. And a number of years later, he started boxing again. Boxed a little bit, kind of took a, a, a long layoff or a semi-long layoff and started again. And George Foreman, after he coming out of retirement, kind of almost two times, um, won the heavyweight world championship again. Now, here's the interesting thing. He won it at age 45 the second time, two decades after he first won the heavyweight world championship. Now, that's a fascinating story. And there's, there's unique gifts to George Foreman. Uh, I give you that, but that's a lot of persistence right there. Um, there's another one that might be less known. This young lady was named Bethany Hamilton. She uh, was a professional surfer. As a young girl, she was uh, surfing and was attacked by a shark and lost one of her arms. After surgery, she, what I would do was retire for good. After surgery and after a lengthy rehab, she went back and continued her surfing career and won a national title and continued in a long professional surfing career. Now that's some serious guts and a lot of persistence. So persistence is a beautiful thing. It's certainly inspiring in sports, but sports are infinite. Are they not? Or excuse me, they're, they're finite. Are they not? They're just, they're just finite. Sports will come and go. They'll, 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 they'll be an end to sports. And we, we like to think about the sports legends, but sports will end at some time. They'll no longer exist. And uh, Brother Mark this morning, you know, it's funny how that works as we do our, our morning Bible study and as they kind of, as it kind of coalesces, uh, coalesces with our, uh, our scripture for, our ser- for the sermon. Um, the Christian life is a life that is hidden in Christ. And the Christian life is eternal. Our God is an eternal God. And so the value of the gospel is not finite, it's infinite. And our walk and our persistence in the Christian life has infinite value. The gospel has eternal value. So persisting, persisting in gospel labor, labor has eternal value. There's much to be enjoyed about persistence in aspects of life, but nothing compares to persisting in gospel labor. So here's my encouragement right up front. And we talked about a lot of the the elements of our life and the uniqueness of our times. And we addressed much of that this morning and rightly so. And and Mark was uh, so spot on in bringing us back to this reality. We have a call on our lives and it's nothing less than this to abandon ourselves to Christ for he is worthy of our worship.
And part of our abandoning ourselves to Christ is this reality of persisting. And we will not persist in the Christian life in and of our own strength, even of our, our, our frailty. We'll persist in the Christian life as we lay ourselves before God and beg him to give us the enabling grace to persist. At least we fall. So I'm going to give you a couple of points this morning. And as I give them to you, there I'll give them to you up front. Point one is going to be be purposeful. And point two is going to be be persistent. Now, I, I give you the, the be this and be that. And that comes with a huge asterisk. You can't be this or that. And of your own strength. When I say be purposeful, and we think about that in terms of living out the Christian life, carrying the gospel, laboring in the gospel, we want to be purposeful. Yes, and we'll talk about that. But to be purposeful, we must lay that before God and beg God to make us, enable us, empower us, strengthen us, give us capacity to be purposeful day after day after day. We will not, we cannot in and of our own strength. And the same goes for our persistence. We cannot be persistent Christians in and of our own strength. We must beg God day after day after day to grant us capacity to be persistent in our carrying the gospel, in our labors for the gospel. So I want you to see it in that light. And again, we, we address much of our time, you know, or the times we're in this morning. And Brother Chris, you know, some, some uh, illustrations just stay with you. Right? You know, you just have those people to stay with you. Now, Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner will stay with me forever. That's one I'll just always have. But how true it is. How true it is. We are called to obedience. And I want you to understand, we think about this up front, our persistence. There are no guarantees of our safety. And we live, we've been, we've, we've, we live in a part of the world where we're Christians in a, in a particular part of the world. We live in a particular community. Most of us or, you know, or our families have, have come up in, in a culture that is uh, very safe in terms of Christian freedom. And that's what we pray for. The Bible teaches us to pray for that, to pray for our liberty, to carry on as Christians freely. That's what we're to pray for. But if that's not our situation, we're to obey our God. Come what may. I'll say this up front. The gospel is not only worth dying for. The gospel sometimes requires our dying. That's part of the Christian life. And Paul teaches us much about that reality. I'll put it like this. The Apostle Paul here, we'll, we'll just take, and again, we're going to take a look at some of his journey. So I'll, I'll try to back you up and get and just kind of clue you in where I'm, where I'm trying to pull this from and where I'm going. But Paul certainly understood that the gospel was dying for. 
And this morning, we need to just lay hold of that. I want you this morning to understand the gospel is worth dying for. Christians have known that all, all generations all over the world, but it's never really come home to roost for us, per se, at large. I'm not prognosticating. I don't know that it's come home for us to roost now. We pray that it hasn't in a large-scale sense where you see a culture begin to get very hostile towards Christians. I don't know. That's above my pay grade. But I will say this, we're to know our times, we're to be wise, we're to be full of wisdom, and we're to be aware of our times. We're to be praying for peace and prosperity and for freedom, for the gospel to flow. But if it does not, we must have conscience that have a steely resolve. We, our arms are wide open. Our hands are diligent to be gracious and kind and loving. But our conscience, our conscience must be steely in our resolve. There is no place to compromise. We have a gospel to carry. We have a God to obey. And if the culture comes down otherwise, then we must understand the gospel is worth dying for. We look back in the Old Testament, we know this is true. It's true of Paul. 1 Samuel 17, we know that was also true. It's true of David. Here's a little guy, waltzes out there with a slingshot and faces down the giant, right? Why? Because he's an expert shot with a slingshot? No, because the God of Israel is not to be mocked. That's why. You see the difference? David's not some, some hot shot warrior, crack shot. David's a man of conviction. That's the difference. The God of Israel is not to be mocked. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There. In Daniel chapter 3. So they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Why? Because they will not bow down and worship idols. So they go because the God of heaven and earth must not be, must not, must be worshipped and idols must be put away. That's conviction. What about Daniel? One with whom the book is, is author or, or is written after. Uh, what about Daniel 6? When Daniel goes to the lion's den. Why? Same principle, right? right? The true God of heaven and earth must be worshipped. And to commune with him in prayer is the most intimate way that we can worship him. And for someone to come and say, otherwise, there's the line that cannot be crossed. No. Come what may, the God of heaven and earth must be worshipped rightly according to his principles and his calling upon our lives. And nothing has changed for us. Nothing has changed. The one true God is to be worshipped. That's our standard. And no one tells us how or why we should not. And if that comes down in our life, the gospel is worth dying for. Now, when I say all this heavy language up front, um, I don't want to stand up here as some brave man. 
William Wallace, I'm not. <laughs> I know myself. I'm more cowardly than anybody in this room. I fear for all the time. All the time. <laughs> and of my own strength, I will fold up like a wet noodle. Don't, don't, don't let, hear my words. I'm not trying to sound um, self-righteous here. But we do need to know our frailties. And we need to know our God. We need to know the word of God because the word of God helps us know our God. And our God will come to our aid. Now, the greatest controversy is really in church history. You know what the greatest controversy in church history has been over? Well, I can think two, in, in, uh, two particularly, but um, probably the most controversial was the Donatist controversy. And that was over Christians under persecution recanting of their faith. Where, the, where it really came down to that. You recant or we kill you. And some did. Now it's happened other times. That's the, the greatest controversy in church history. I've always been over that. Donald's controversy is probably the most prominent. And so there was much struggle after the persecution where do we let these people back into the fellowship of the church? There was much struggle over that. Now there I say, we should be very gracious and very clear on the gospel. You got that? That's our role. Very gracious and very clear on the gospel. Don't kid yourself, man. You might fold up. I might fold up. That's why we're praying. That God will give us strength to honor him in times such as this. And that should be an urgent prayer for all of us. But well, let's look at Paul a little bit here. Why would I say all that when he's just jumping a ship with his buddies and they're, they're making their way back to Jerusalem? What I want to say that is because he's on his mission. And Paul's a man on a mission. So we're just looking here at kind of the course that he's running. But he's running. Why I say this is that he's running a course. That's actually what he's doing. And he's running a course because he's a persistent Christian. He has a mission, and he's going to see it through. So a couple of practical things up front before we just get to reality of being purposeful here. We know why he's going. We've talked about that. And Paul's just persistent in doing it. He doesn't allow the consequences to dictate to him. And we see, we're reminded of again here, he's still making his way back. And this has been an arduous journey thus far, right? It's not been easy. This has been difficult. It has been costly to him. It's going to continue to be costly to him. And along the way, he's going to be reminded that he is going to suffer for this. Now, the, the prophecies that come uh, are, are partial. We don't get a whole full picture there. But Paul gets enough. I mean, that'll sober you up, right? If you're told all along the way, you're going to suffer. This is going to cost you. That's a way of sobering you up. But he's persisting in what he understands and knows in the depths of his heart, this is God's call on my life. This is what God has called me to do. Now, there's some question about whether Paul misses it here a little bit, and we'll address that a little. Some say yes, some say no. 
what he kind of veers off and sort of just gets so headlong and is and bound and bound in his own determination, just make something happen in and out of his own strength. So he sort of veers off and doesn't listen. Um, so there's, there's a couple of different views on that and, and we'll look at it and I'll give you my best that, that, uh, and that I understand it to be, but no upfront, this man has set his mind to fulfill what he believes God is calling him to do. And he has been very persistent at it. He's determined. So the consequences are out the window. And just a little application up front for us, that should be true of us as well. The consequences cannot dictate to our Christian life. The moment we allow the consequences to begin to dictate to us, we're dead in the water. Consequences just cannot dictate to us. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, the truth of God, God's call in our life, that's what dictates to us. We see that in Paul. It's a beautiful thing. So here, here's how we approach everything. And again, we're, we're in unprecedented times in our culture. We know that. This is unique. We were talking this past Wednesday at our, at our, our prayer time. This is the first time in human history that we, the tyrants have always been there. That's true. But this is the first time you have a unique aspect globally that we've never faced before. This is the first time you're going to see tyrants that collectively have a worldview of secular humanism. In the ancient world, there was some God concept. There was never this full autonomy of man. That's a unique layer. Now, I know what all that's going to, what all that's going to mean, how all that's going to spill out. I don't. But just we need to know our times. This is unprecedented. You're not, you're not going to see tyrants come up globally ever in the history of man like we're seeing now with a mindset, with a worldview of secular humanism, full autonomy of man. That's different. That is unique. So he's even aware of our times. Paul was an excellent example for us of being aware of his time, aware of his circumstances. And what do we do with that? Wow, Brother Jonathan, man, yeah. Secular humanism, man, that, that is, that's brutal. I've been, you know, I've been you know, just studying a little bit here there about the, you know, the Stasi camp there in, in uh, you know, old East Berlin. I'm just thinking it was just not that. I mean, years ago I was there at the wall and it was just a fascinating thing. That was brutal. Just to read about that is horrifying. The consequences cannot dictate to us. This is what we must know. So here's a little application right up front before I get to the point. Here's how we approach every, every, every circumstance, every consequence of life for us as we carry the gospel, as we seek to be those who are obedient. That's our call. Safety safety's not really, do we want to be wise? Yes. Do we want to be careful? Yes. But safety is not our calling. Obedience is our calling. you got to understand that. We're not going to really live that out well in our own strength. That must be God's work in us. But that's our calling. That's who we are. We're called to obedience. Safety doesn't dictate to us. Now, how do we reconcile that in the frailty of our lives? Well, simple. God is sovereign. 
That's such a beautiful theology that we can hold that and know that now we can live in any circumstance of life, in any age, in any time, in any place. I was worried to death. I was worried to death about my, my wife traveling, everything. Uh, my wife, my oldest son, and the baby traveling. And y'all know you've been praying for my father-in-law. Uh, you know the circumstances there. You know uh, that, that, uh, that they live in another country. And so my wife has, has been desperate to get to see him and since he's uh, been so frail. Uh, but I've been worried. You know, and I've had brother after brother, you know, console me and, and tell me the truth. And that's where they go. That's where brothers go. And so we need to constantly do this because, you know, I get that and I know it's true. And let's go right back to frailty of my emotions. Oh, but what about this? What about that? Oh, but oh, this could happen. Oh, but that can happen. And then, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day. I said, honey, man, I just, you know, I don't have a good feeling about this. And, and you know, and her wonderful accent there, she said, you know, and I won't try to imitate that. Uh, she said, well, I don't have a good feeling about it either, but God is sovereign. And I said it all my wisdom. <laughs> okay. 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 God is sovereign. Amen. And that's where we stand. In our circumstances of life. God is sovereign. And that's where Paul stood in his circumstances of life. Because they're not good right here. I mean, yeah, we're just wrapping out the, rap, the map right now. But there's a background here. They're not good. And he never, he doesn't even flinch. And that's good for us. And Paul doesn't flinch. He's obedient. So don't be obsessed. Here's, here's an application for you. Don't be obsessed with safety. We've had it. It's been good. We can praise God for it. We may continue to have it. We may not. Don't obsess over safety. Have clear objectives. Now, here's something very practical I want to give you. Have clear objectives and pursue them with fearless passion. I won't quiz you, but think about that. Have objectives. We need to have something that we know, okay, here's, we know God's calling on our life. Now, we need to get specific about that in our daily living. If you haven't done that, you need to do that. So I, I'm not a great example, but I'll give you mine, okay? We want to know God. To know God, we must know his word. We want to know God. Can't know him without knowing his word. So that's, that should be true of all of us. There's one for you. That should be true of all of us. Now, what do I want to do? I want to feed this family. I want to feed the flock. That's an objective of mine. I want to evangelize. I want to be purposeful about that. That's an objective. I want to encourage and build up and strengthen the men of this church to make to see them lead well, to lead their families well, to understand their role as leaders in the home and the men that God's called to lead here. And I want to keep continuing to do that. That's an objective of mine. That's, what, that's a very clear objective of mine. That's what I want to do. So there's, that's not all of mine, but there, see, that, that's what I'm talking about. Does that make sense? That's my illustration to you. I don't want to just, you know, focus on me, but that's the best way I know how to give you an illustration. It has to be very specific. Teachers, you should be great at this. Very specific objectives. You need to do that. Because why? Then we can lay those before the Lord, right? Simple. Well, little Sally's my neighbor. You know, I don't know her that well, but I, I know she, she's, she's not a Christian. And, you know, we kind of, we, we pass by and we wave. We don't, I don't really, but I want to, I want to, Find a way to, to talk to her, to get to know her. I want to be able to share the gospel with her. There's a very clear objective. 
And then that's what you lay before the Lord in prayer. Take these things, Lord. Again, we're not planning our life for the Lord, but here's, here's some things that I desire. And my very heart's desire is for them to honor you and for me to be persistent in them and for me to have conviction here and for me to be diligent about knowing you and serving you. And if they need correcting, if I'm off track, please correct me. But here they are. Be very specific. Have some clear objectives and pursue them in prayer. And share them with us. So we'll pursue them with you in prayer. Do it fearlessly. If you have them, God has a way of kind of bubbling them up in very unique ways right in front of your face. And you're like, oh, I had them, but now, ooh, now I got to follow through. Do that fearlessly. Now, point number one. Here we go. Be purposeful. Okay, that's obvious, but be purposeful means to pray that God will give you strength to be purposeful in your Christian walk, right? So here we go. Let's look at the first three verses there. And again, this is just tracking the journey. We're just catching ships. But Paul's doing this for a reason. He has a call upon his life, and he's being very purposeful. So when they parted there from them, again, the leaders there, and they don't get much a sense of it in the English in the, the English translation, but that parted there is a, is a, a very beautiful word. It's, it's kind of a word that uh, is used for um, babies winning them, or winning babies from their mother's breast. And so it's this, this intimate picture of these elders. And Paul telling me, this is the last time I'm going to see you. And you remember, they, they wept and they just fell upon him. They hugged his neck and they kissed him and kissed him. And they just wept as they prayed together at the beach. So we don't really get that, that the, the emotion of that in parted, but that's what the, that's what the word translated parted really, really is used for. It's like weaning a child from the breast. And so they set sail and they ran a straight court to cost. And again, okay, let me, Kendall, help me. All right. Uh, a GNC. Boy, I should, I should you got to help me with computers, man. A GNC, Mediterranean, Europe, Asia Minor. They're skirting all along the coast of Asia Minor and they're going to come south because they're headed to Jerusalem. Okay. So they're skirting the coast in a small boat, the, the kind of island hopping. And you'll see here, so what, what they would do in that time is they would travel during the day because the winds would come. But it was a direct course of winter, so it was a good time to travel during the day. If you were going south, it was an easy route. You could hop from island to island. And they would just park at night because there would be no winds. There's no use. You just kind of just be sitting out there just kind of twisting around in circles. So travel by day, then they would, then they would just, catch, you know, just catch a little island there, wait the night, travel again. So they're just... Skirting these islands down along Asia Minor. Ultimately, they're heading over to Tyre, right? And then from Tyre, they'll go down ultimately to Jerusalem. So that's what's happening. And they're skirting the coastline. It's a very small boat. So they go to Kos and then they go to Rhodes. And by the way, Rhodes was a place where they had a 100 foot statue of the sun god uh, Helios. That was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was right there in uh, Rhodes, that little island. And then from there, they go to the Patria. And then from Patria to a large port city, uh, or excuse me, Patria's a large port city there. And so from there, they're going to catch a larger ship. And that's going to take them across the Mediterranean all the way over to Tyre, which is about a five to seven day journey, depending on the wind. It's about 400 miles. So they're just skirting these islands. 
And then they're going to go into the, and finally they come to the large port city there at Patria. And they're going to catch a cargo ship there. And we know it's a cargo ship because as they reach the next stop, they unload some cargo. And when they're in Thailand, they spend a little extra time. And they have extra time. Why? Because he's trying to get to Jerusalem on a certain date, right? Do you know when that was? Do you remember? Absolutely. Yes, he's trying to get there, right? So he set, a, he set a certain time that he wants to arrive. When Pentecost hits, they want to be there. So he has a little extra time, so it works out well. They have a little layover in Tyre when they, when they reach Tyre. And again, they're kind of at, they're just at the mercy of, of the, the ship captains here. They've got cargo to unload, and I'm sure it seems like a lot because it took a couple of days to get all this transpired. But while they re- when they reach there, they're going to come and meet up with a few little disciples, okay? But they're purposeful. You see this. This is, a, this is a very mapped out route. They have a purpose. Paul and the eight men with him have a purpose. And again, it's arduous. We don't see a lot of major struggle here. But what we do see is the persistence. This is Paul making his way back. This is a diligence of Paul. He's going to see it through. And again, we're going to see uh, him meet up with some believers here in verse four. But just tracking the course, they make it uh, to Tyre. And they have a little time to spend there. So I want you to know there, it's just, um, he's a man on a mission. And his conviction is fueled. It's fueled by courage. So when we think about the persistence of this man, if you think of if we thought of persistence, if we had a spiritual skeletal system, and let's say that um, persistence would be the pelvis and courage would be the arms and the legs, would be courage. The backbone would be conviction. So they all flow together. But when I say we are to pray to be persistent like Paul, in that is embedded this spiritual reality of conviction and courage. Conviction grants courage and persistence. Now, I've labeled this as being persistent, but they all work together. And behind us, the backbone, the spiritual backbone of that reality that we're praying for, that we're seeing here in Paul, is conviction. And we see conviction in all of life too, right? But we're talking about Christian conviction. That's a whole other ballgame. And speaking of ballgame, I'll give you another example. Uh, Like baseball, like the old guys, Ted Williams, like Ted Williams. Ted Williams is an interesting guy. Pretty cantankerous guy. Great baseball player, Hall of Famer, back in the 50s, 60s. Played even a little bit into the 70s. Uh, loved that era myself. Um, I believe he played a little bit in the 70s. Don't quote me on that. He's uh, a managed player for a while. Anyway, he had an interesting little part of his career. He missed several years, I think four years altogether. Um, part of that was serving as a fighter pilot in World War II, where he volunteered and left uh, professional baseball to fight in World War II, to fight to fly combat missions in World War II. That was, uh, uh, that's some conviction. And again, he was pretty cantankerous with the, with the, the press and didn't really, he wasn't really a, 
an open guy, so he didn't go into a lot of this. But needless to say, that's conviction. I, I don't want to try to claim his motives. But there's an example of conviction just from the world. That's conviction. Later, during the Korean War, he leaves baseball a second time and goes back and flies combat missions in Korea. And there uh, he has he has crash landing and, and um, almost damages his, his legs and ends his career. But my point is, interesting guy, and an interesting example of conviction just from the world. There's just one, just from the sport world again. But we are people of conviction that has eternal consequences again. Our conviction has a whole other level. We see wonderful stories of conviction in this world, and that's great. They're wonderful. They're they're inspiring at times. Our lives are different. We are hidden in Christ, and we have an eternal hope and an eternal calling on our lives and a specific time given to us by a sovereign God who calls us to trust in him that he might grant us conviction to carry out what he has called us to do. And so the conviction cultivates the courage and the persistence. And it's Paul's conviction here. He's purposeful because he's a man of conviction. And he stays the course of this mission. So here's application by way of question. What's your objective? Be persistent. To be persistent, you must have conviction. Conviction gives you courage to be persistent. What's your objective? Set goals and see the course. Set your goals. Be specific about them and see the course. Philippians 3.10. There's many many verses we could put here, but here's one to just hang your hat on. Thinking about being specific. That God will build courage in you from your conviction. How, How does the conviction come? Know his word. Why? Because you know his word, you know him. God builds conviction in you. When he builds conviction in you, he'll build courage in you. When he builds courage in you, he'll build persistence in you. Philippians 3.10. This is Paul again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. And Paul, actually, his journey looks a lot like Christ's journey here. That's just a little side note. I don't like too much of that. But his journey here all the way to his mission to get this um, to get this offering there and all the prophecy that comes his way in terms of what that's going to cause. And yet his following thing looks a lot like Christ. So it's a beautiful little shadowing there of Christ. But there's the heart's desire, Philippians 3.10. There's, there's a prayer verse for us thinking about being purposeful. And secondly, I want you to see just simply that. Be persistent. Look there in verses 4 through 6. So they're entire. It says they're looking up the disciples. So there's disciples there. They know there's disciples there. And apparently there's not many of them. Because they have to look for them. But there was a little church planted there. Now, Paul didn't plant this church. Who planted this church? How How do these people... Hear the gospel. How do they come to Christ? These people of Tyre. And this is a Jewish community. How'd this happen? Primarily Jewish community. How'd this happen? Remember? It did have something to do with Stephen. So when Stephen was martyred, then there was persecution that broke out, right? 
And many of the disciples fled Jerusalem. Some fled to the port city of Tyre, where they carried the gospel with them. And we see a little band of believers here. Again, now, not many. So this area that maybe the gospel was not didn't have a profound effect like we see it in some other areas. But there were some. And by the way, who was kind of the root source of all that? Paul. So here's the persecutor of the church. It actually was the flashpoint of getting the gospel out to these folks. Now coming back around home after being the missionary to the Gentiles. Planting churches, being used by a vessel of God, and now brought right back to the same port. And he hunts up just a little band of believers. That's the sovereignty of God in the life of believers. Be persistent. So he finds them there. He finds them and he stays seven days with them. And again, they have a little time before they need to get back. Uh, So it worked out again providentially for them. The cargo ship has to unload. They're on a larger ship. that unloads the cargo here. That gives them a little extra time and it actually puts them right on track for when they need to be there. So it works out. And they get to see these little band of believers. And so they stay there seven days. And they kept telling Paul through the spirit. Now, that translates through the spirit there. People, it's the best I can understand. It's through the spirit of God. Uh, some people say it's, uh, um, we, we understand it to be the gift of prophecy still going on at this time. So it's a gift of prophecy through the spirit of God. Uh, they tell Paul. Now, again, what do they say to him? They say, not to set foot in Jerusalem. But what's prophesied is the same thing that, that Paul's been hearing along the way. And later with her Agabus, who we met earlier, come back and prophesy again. It's the same thing. There's persecution coming for you. And Agabus gets very uh, specific about it. But he doesn't tell Paul what's going to happen beyond that. Paul's never told that he's going to be martyred, he's going to die. Nobody says that. They just, all along the way thus far, and Tyra will be included in this, it's just that you're going to be persecuted. You know? So that would be a logical thought. But now we hear through the Spirit when he sees believers along the way, they're just reminding him of this. This is going to happen. Now, we don't have a full prophetic word here about his martyrdom. That's never comes. That doesn't even come from Agabus later on. But we do have this, which Paul already knows. And of course, I'm going to say here, now there's people that would say Paul disobeyed here. He was clearly told in the power of the Spirit not to go, but Paul goes on his own. There's some that would hold it, and you could make a case for that. I'm not positive. All within me says no. The best I would know to tell you as your brother trying to work through this test, text is that um, Paul was not disobeying. And I'll try to make a little case for that in a moment. Paul was not disobeying. He was obeying Christ. Uh, He was told clearly that's prophesied. That's what's going to happen. That was true. It was a prophetic word. The emotions of these brothers and sisters that don't know him, don't know his situation. Now, remember, he just met them. This is not, he's not at Miletus anymore. He was their spiritual father. They've been there, they've been with him a long time. Although they love him, they care for him. This was a wonderful little respite, probably from, you know, it's probably not any um, Christian fellowship with anyone other than themselves along the journey. And here they found this little band of believers. So it's a sweet little moment here. And they'll pray together and they'll see them all at the beach in the same way. But there's not that great instrument. There's not that history with Paul. And so they get a prophetic word and then they just say what they would say. And again, I don't get too technical here, but 
prophecy at that time. It's unique. Corinthians tells us how to work this. You know, it's two or three. And then we have to have the interpreters there, you know, so it's not just a, a prophecy, although this, we, we know this to be true. It's consistent with what he's heard so far. But then we don't just have, you know, just the buzzer and sister. Oh, that's bad. Don't do it. Mm. Are you crazy? So I don't believe that Paul was disobedient. And we did hear, he did hear uh, another a prophecy here, but she's been consistent. That's what he's heard all along the way. So nothing new under the sun for Paul on his journey back to Jerusalem. But he does hear again from these believers. And he's not deterred. He, he does not even flinch. Uh, takes it and loves them in prayer. And they kneel down again at the beach and they pray and they make their farewells uh, there in verse five. And then in verse six, it says they went on board in the ship and they returned to home again. We're going to ultimately see them make their way all the way back to Jerusalem. But in the stop, it was a blessed stop along the voyage. It was a timely stop. It was a timely reminder. And the focus of the stop was on nothing other than that prophetic word. I mean, we, they did have a little fellowship, but that's what we're supposed to glean from this. Look, here's a prophetic word to Paul. And I believe he was obedient in his persistence rather than disobedient. Nothing new under the sun for him. It's the same old story. And there's a, there's a spiritual gift exercised here. Paul takes it. He accepts it. He's familiar with it. It's consistent. Uh, 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 it sobers him again. But it just gives him a, a, a greater resolve to persist on in the sovereignty of God, knowing what he believes God has called him to. And I believe he's correct. And a natural response from the folks there that have, you know, uh, obviously taken to Paul in this little time they had together. is like, man, you know, you crazy. Don't do this. But that's that's a human response. Now, could Paul. Be disobedient is possible. And if he were, that's part of his human frailty, like all other uh, characters of the Bible that we see that match up very well with us. And God is still sovereign. And even here, later they'll say, you know, God's will be done. Now, that doesn't give us, you know, we can't just throw that around and give us a reign to do whatever we want. But ultimately, that's true. So it could, it could, and he would just be human. <laughs> I don't believe that. that I, I really believe Paul was absolutely obedient here. He did not miss the mark. Uh, he heard them. He took it as a word from God, and he just took it uh, as something that was there to give him resolve, and that's exactly what it did. It gave him resolve, and he cannot be diverted. Now, let's think about Paul a little bit and his being obedient here. I mean, he's certainly sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, right? We see that in his life. In uh, Acts 16, uh, verse 6, it says they passed through uh, Phrygia, uh, the Phrygian and Galatian and Galilean region. And what? What the Spirit of God do there when they were passing through? Forbade them, right? It forbade them from speaking a word in Asia. Now, Paul was headed there, was he not? And the Spirit of God directed them otherwise. said, no, didn't give any reasons why, didn't give any further instructions. The Spirit of God simply said to Paul and his companions, no. And what did they do? They changed their plans. They diverted. Because he was sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 20, verses 23 and 24. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await you. Now he's talking about his journey right now. 
So this is what the Holy Spirit says to him. And of course, that was confirmed all along the way. Bonds and afflictions await me, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. There you go. There's obedience over safety. He never flinched. Certainly he was sensitive to the Spirit. But he understands what the Spirit of God had called him to do, the calling that God had laid upon his life. And he doesn't give his life as uh, more dear than the call that God has put upon him. He doesn't put safety over obedience. And then he goes on in verse 25 there to say this. And now, behold, I know that all of you among, and he's talking to the elders here, my leaders. Now I know that all of you, Excuse me, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Paul, Paul knew what was going on. He's nobody's fool. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. For I will show him, now this is, this is again the very beginning of Paul's ministry. And this is what was told when Paul was brought in. And everybody was frightened of him. Paul was brought in. You know, he said, look, take him, nurse him a little bit, because I've got plans for him. And here's what was said. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And that's what the early church heard about Paul before they could rally around the reality of him becoming a follower of Christ. The Spirit of God says, look, Nurse him up, because I just met with him in the most profound way. Matter of fact, he can even see. He's going to come around. The scales are going to fall off. And this is what everyone needs to know about this guy. I've sovereignly chosen him out. He's my guy. And part of his ministry to glorify my name is going to involve suffering. And that's a unique call, but it's a clear principle. Right? Acts 23, verse 1, Paul looking intently at the council. Now, that's when he gets there, where this is yet to come. When he gets there, listen to what he says. Looks intently at the council and says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God to this day. Now, Paul was had an inkling of doubt about his being uh, missing the mark or being deceived in any way. Would he not be sensitive to it? He has no doubt that he's been obedient here. He gets to the council, I don't have any doubt about my obedience. And Paul, Paul's not arrogant in that way. This is a man who's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He's certain that he's been obedient, and I believe that is true. But all the way, he hears this reminder, and he remains persistent and his diligence to be obedient over self-preservation. And we, too, should follow Paul's example. Be encouraged by him. Remember that God is sovereign. And we, too, must not let circumstances dictate to us. We must, like Paul, see that obedience comes before self-preservation. If those issues ever come up, in our lives. So be persistent. And persistence 
comes from courage and courage comes from conviction. Pray to the Lord that he would build these things in your life. Set clear objectives. Lay them out before the the Lord. And pray that God will give you a persistent Christian life. Full of courage. Full of conviction. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for these verses, this this little um, just picture of Paul's journey. But oh, what a journey he is on. And we thank you for uh, your, your preservation of your word here for us. We thank you for the examples that you give us from those who have gone before us. Uh, your power that is evident in our lives. And we ask that that would be true of us. We ask for your power to be on display in our lives. We ask that um, we would know you more fully. That the Spirit of God would take your word and, 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 um, and teach us to a full degree that we might know you. We ask for mercy on our land. We ask for that we might live peaceable lives. That we might have freedom and liberty to carry your gospel. Uh, we ask that the Holy Spirit of the church would flow out into our culture. That there would be a great awakening, great renewal. My goodness, we don't know timelines that's above our pay grade. We're always praying for renewal. We're always praying for awakenings. We're always praying for a flood of the gospel to go forth. But our calling is to carry it diligently. Come what may, in whatever situation that you intend to lead us through in your sovereignty for our lives here in this time that you've called us to. Our hearts cry is there would be an overflow from the church, that you would uh, strengthen us, that you would clean us up, that we would be purified. That the church would be, uh, uh, that the power of your presence would be real with us and alive in us. And that would be evident to our own uh, culture. And that the, the spirit of God would flow from our purity and our love for you and our witness for you out into a culture with great power. We beg for that to be true. That's our heart's desire. But give us a steely resolve that we would be faithful, that we would be obedient in all circumstances of life. And that we would trust that you are sovereign and you will not be thwarted. Give us a persistence. Give us conviction that we might have courage. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.